Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is not someone else's problem, but is all of our problem. I'm Tiernan Dewey and as we are warned that the UK is at a critical point, that may explain why the Prime Minister and sandblasted bag of liposuction discards Boris Johnson is nowhere to be seen, as he just can't understand why it isn't more supportive of his achievements so far. Chief Medical Officer and Doug from the cartoon Doug, Chris Whitty, and Chief Scientific Advisor and Greg Wallace Halloween costume Patrick Valance have warned that the UK faces 50,000 Covid cases a day by October if no action is taken, something that the government have heeded by not responding to the comment until at least 24 hours later. The view from number 10 is that doing nothing is not an option, but neither is doing too much such as a full lockdown again, meaning that like most things this government ever do, they'll be the bare minimum action possible and then they'll demand praise for it. I mean, there'll likely be a new three-word slogan that'll instruct you to still go to work, but don't smooch anyone or you'll get fined. And Boris Johnson will shout out, Slog, but don't snog or you'll get flogged or something, and assume that that should be enough to ensure everyone spends the next few weeks unsure whether they should ever go outside ever again, while various members of the Cabinet are caught having an orgy in the Parliament wine cellar, but insist there was a no-kissing rule in place, so it's legal. It's what they're doing with testing, isn't it? That sort of bare minimum thing. I mean, there are some tests happening, which means they can say the system is working, because if it wasn't working, there'd be no tests, and basically this is all a success. Appearing in front of the Parliamentary Science and Technology Committee with a facial expression that says there's something sharp in my shoe, but I haven't the skill to remove it. Dido Harding said that England can do nearly a quarter of a million tests a day, but the problem is more people than that want one, as though she hadn't realised there isn't some sort of natural cap for infections that can happen at any one time. Like COVID-19 operates on a one-in-one-out policy, like a particularly ageist nightclub doorman. Harding said that demand outweighs capacity by three to four times at least, and seemed to be pleased by that, as though unlike her days at TalkTalk, Talk, she finally has a product sought after by customers. Leave them wanting more and all that. There will be 500,000 tests a day within six weeks, said Harding, which still won't be enough judging by predictions of infection rises. In lieu of festivals returning, maybe Covid tests will become the new Glastonbury ticket, where people spend ages online trying to be one of the lucky few to get one, before travelling hundreds of miles just to have a terrible time in a car park, stick things up your nose and then find out you've caught something. 
Harding was asked why the upping of tests was planned for October, not September, when schools went back, and she replied that no one was expecting to see a sizable increase in demand like we have. It's particularly worrying that the woman in charge of testing, tracking and tracing is entirely unaware of the existence of children. I mean, I should say it's remarkable that she might be considered for the role of head of NHS England as of spring next year, but of course she is. I mean, who better to revamp a struggling health service than someone who'll make people queue round the block to use it? Sure, all the money for procedures will now be in the hands of a Serco rep who'll be operating on you after one night's training of YouTube DIY videos, but imagine the insta-hits you'll get for your pick of gaining access to the exclusive A&E ward while there's only enough waiting space for a quarter of the people who need it. While there might be a testing increase in October, the Prime Minister has warned that it's going to be a while before pregnancy-style Covid tests appear. Though, considering how often he disappears when there's loads of positive results, you could say that we have them already. Boris did insist, though, that children should stay in school unless they get a positive test. But with the testing system failing and Harding not even sure what a child is, that's going to be quite a challenge. And it means more than likely, contagious kids will just be sitting in classrooms gobbling Covid like a special 2020 edition of Hungry Hippos. If kids can find a test, let alone a positive one, they should be immediately given their Duke of Edinburgh award as it'll have involved several days of heavy orienteering. No testing, but also no lockdown either, say the government, or at least no fresh lockdown, although that could just mean that there'll be a stale one brought in months after it's no longer any good. Instead, there's just loads of local lockdowns with further parts of Wales gaining strict restrictions and the North East too. Well, apart from Blackpool, which I guess is because infections there keep going up, 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 then down, then round a loop, then up again and then down really fast before slowing to a stop. You do wonder if, much like everything else, we'll have so many local lockdowns but the government will leave just around the PM's country residence in Chequers completely restriction-free so they can declare the nation still open. Or, you know, just wherever malevolent Toby Turtle Dominic Cummings happens to have climbed all over the stairgate and toddled off to this week. Whatever happens, it's likely that Covid restrictions will be removed for Christmas Day, which is a shame as that way my family will know what I'm getting them. Health Secretary and tragic no-mask Matt Hancock has been keen to fight back, though, and point out that the government are doing everything they can, like the snivelling Jobsworth he is, insisting that the public shouldn't believe the stories and that tests are available everywhere. So, you know, if you were part of that two-mile-long queue outside a Sunderland testing centre last week, you'll be gutted to know that you probably could have just checked in a bin or in your shoe or under a cat or something, and there'd probably have been a test there, so says the Department of Health. It's all your fault, according to Hancock, especially symptom-free people who queue to get tests to selfishly not want to pass it to others. Nothing must infuriate this government more than people going out of their way to prevent doing damage, despite no evidence that they might, as it's the exact opposite sensibilities to what the Cabinet has, and it really shows them up. Not only that, but Hancock reckons if there's another lockdown, it's all your fault too. And hey, I guess I agree. I mean, when, oh when, will us members of the public make national executive decisions about major crises and just leave the government alone? Leader of the House, and why ruin steampunk like that, Jacob Rees-Mogg, said anyone complaining about a lack of tests should stop their endless carping. He wasn't specific, but I bet Mogg only meant common carping, as otherwise the fish is an invasive species, and he's probably quite a fan of the posh ones. Sure, the people elected the government to be in charge, but let's just have some sympathy for them, right? I mean, they didn't ask for all this responsibility, apart from when they did and all that campaigning they did. And so maybe we should just give them all a break. Or in the case of the Prime Minister, yet another one. A source at Perugia Airport told Italian paper La Repubblica that the Prime Minister flew there on September the 11th, which must have made a nice change for that day to have a catastrophic wreckage go into a plane. And then Boris returned after a long weekend. Downing Street denied the story, though, as actually the PM was at his son's baptism, something that clearly isn't true, as Johnson doesn't believe in forgiveness for your sins and would much rather no one asked about them and someone else took the blame entirely. 
Rather than have his son's head doused with holy water, he'd probably prefer the priest teach him how to point at the EU and say they did it. Which means either he did go, and it's another one of Johnson's lies, preferring everyone not to know that he went abroad for a jolly mid-crisis, probably to see his pal Russian oligarch and Ulick Sheldon grew a beard Evgeny Lebvedev for a party. Or it's a case of mistaken identity, and someone just happened to be pushing a wheelbarrow full of hardened gruel through arrivals. Of course, Johnson could just prove where he was by providing photographic evidence of his kid's private baptism, but that would make it harder for him to say the baby wasn't his when he abandons Carrie for a younger spouse in six months' time. Who says that he doesn't plan ahead, eh? It might be that Johnson realises that admitting to parting with rich pals of warp novelty bath plug Vladimir Putin isn't smart this week, as a leak of bank suspicious activity reports known as the FinCEN files have shown how dirty money has moved around the world. And it turns out a lot of it was, well, just through banks kind of happily taking it. There are more UK companies listed in the leaks than any other country, because, you know, we're world leading, and there's quite a few big conservative donors listed in there too. Maybe it's like how some people have gardening shoes though, and there's just no point in using clean money from good causes on the Tories as they'll definitely tar it somehow. I should cut Johnson some slack though as the Prime Minister did warn us last week that the second wave is coming, everyone trying their best to react like he wasn't the last to know and treating it with all the surprise of news of yet another Batman film. No one wants it but due to constant fuck-ups and the prioritising of money over people it was inevitable. But maybe, much like Dido Harding, Johnson didn't expect this. I mean, it's not as if he's been around much heading to his secret Italian parties, and apparently he's finding being Prime Minister extraordinarily tough, with his income having dropped half of what it was to only £150,000 a year. Oh, his flat at number 11 is taxed as a benefit in kind, can you believe it? And he has to pay support out to four of his six kids. It is terrible that these people don't think whether or not they can afford to have children before they go ahead and do it, isn't it? He really should have thought it through. Maybe he should have his salary given to him on a special card so it can't be used on booze and cigarettes, and that may help him to budget a bit. Of course, I joke, but £150,000 isn't much when you need some of it to sneak off to Italy on a secret bender and use the rest of your money to pay off a priest. According to the double act of Valence and Witty, one's a straight man and the other is somehow straighter but with the face of an angry baby, the epidemic infection rate is doubling every seven days, like the opposite of the British economy. The virus is not milder than it was in April, it's just that it says it's learned from its mistakes and it won't treat you like its past relationships, but we all know that's not true. We have, in a bad sense, turned a corner, said Witty, which translated means it's only a matter of time before the government embraced their tradition of it becoming a full U-turn without explanation. Matt Hancock has announced a £500 payment for those on low income who've been asked to self-isolate, but of course if you haven't got a test or you're a child and Dido Harding doesn't believe you exist, you'll never be asked. It's nice to know that people in my industry of comedy and theatre can only get financial support if we go around licking things, though to be fair, that is the standard for most people I know in the theatre industry. There are also new exceptions for childcare in areas of local lockdown, because if children can't be ignored by their parents for extended periods of time, how will we ever have any future Conservatives? I mean, actually, though, childcare and 500 quid makes me almost look forward to another lockdown. It'll be like a paid holiday, just not one to Perugia. If you're told to self-isolate and don't know, you could get a £10,000 fine. So make sure you work from home now after you were told to go back to work just a few days ago. And if you don't self-isolate, you'll be fined, which you can earn the money to pay off by going back to work. By the time you hear this show, the Prime Minister will have made a statement with any further new restrictions, but it's very hard to say if there'll be anything major or, as mentioned before, it'll just be the bare minimum for them to say they're doing something. What we do know is that, as Matt Hancock says, he and the government are doing their best. A terrifying thought, and considering that, thank fuck they aren't doing their worst. 
In other news, it's currently the Labour Party conference, not that anyone's noticed, which must be gutting for an online event called Labour Connected. Who are they connected to? Maybe it's the political version of the human centipede as they just connect to each other, swallowing the same shit over and over again. They've discarded their old slogan of under new management, possibly because actually most of the people now in charge had never left, they'd just been ruining things from the sidelines. And they've now gone for the slogan, a new leadership, which has been chosen to apparently build trust, but mostly makes it sound like their priority will be that pointless expensive royal yacht for the Queen. In her first conference speech as Shadow Chancellor, Hergé drawing Annalise Dodds vowed to restore trust with the private sector, which is fine as long as they promise to restore it back, rather than just take millions of pounds to do a shit job. Though to be fair to Annalise, the policy is in opposition to the current government, who don't trust private businesses unless their friends run them. Labour leader and dad in a 90s CITV sitcom, Keir Starmer, will be making his speech on Tuesday where he'll be focusing on appealing to the northern red wall seats that Labour lost in the last election and with emphasis on patriotism, failing to understand that any of those people who voted Tory aren't likely to be streaming his speech online when they'll either be in groups of 400 people hunting grouse or telling someone on Twitter that lefties are loons because they want to earn money for working or something. Still, good luck to Starmer, as I'm sure a new patriotic label will really enthuse voters just like it did in 2015. Oh, oh well. For some reason, the government sent Foreign Secretary and what Skeletor looked like when he still had a face, Dominic Raab, over to the US to reassure senior government officials about the Irish border situation, what with the new Ah it will break international law bill. Sending Raab to reassure anyone is much like Jurassic Park advertising itself with an animation of a raptor easily opening a door. It sounds like he mostly insisted it's the EU that won't rule out a hard border, something that probably wouldn't have convinced anyone who could read things, but then again, he did meet Republicans, so you never know. Chances are it was all Rob could think about after he'd wrapped his head around actually travelling over the sea, something he never thought possible in this day and age. On the journey home, one of Rob's bodyguards accidentally left his gun on the plane at Heathrow and has now been removed of his operational duties. I mean, I say accidental, but after spending that long with Rob, it was probably the only way the guard could restrain himself from murder. Apart from Dido Harding, in other just-how-do-I-fail-that-well news, disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox has reached the last five to be the next head of the World Trade Organisation, which I'm sure is because other countries think nothing would be funnier than Britain having to take WTO rules and then Fox managing to collapse the entire organisation within a matter of minutes. Meanwhile, sad Mekon, Chris Grayling, has been given a £100,000 contract with a ports company, despite once losing millions after hiring a ferry firm with no boats. Either Grayling has got some amazing Jedi powers we don't know, an extensive collection of blackmail photos of pretty much everyone, or more likely, the ports firm know Brexit's coming, and chances are high everything they own will be on fire within three weeks, so at least they'll get their insurance. And lastly, barrister Amal Clooney has quit her role as UK Special Envoy over the government's internal market bill and its plans to break international law. I hugely respect her for having such conviction, but I'm very worried about her personal life when she finds out about all the heists her husband has been planning with ten of his friends. Second wave, baby. The sequel. More locking, more downing. Too locked, too furious. Ah, sequels are nearly always shit, aren't they? Unless they're like the dark middle part of a trilogy or, you know, they're better because like the jeopardy is even higher. Like this spate of infections has either got to have even more of them and some sort of like queen COVID uh, and then someone we think is an ally turns out to be a robot or it's got to end really badly but then in a few years we're saved by small singing bears. I mean, there are no other options. 
I've decided if it's another proper lockdown, uh, which the Prime Minister has insisted won't happen, so it probably will, then I'm just going to embrace it and do it a lot better this time. I've been through one, so now I know just what to do to make this one actually good. You know, I'm going to try and grow my own language, memorise a sourdough starter, and I'm going to leave all my neighbours notes saying I'm around to help them if they need, but I'm going to miss one digit off my mobile number and that should give them something really fun to do for a while. It'll be like a sort of puzzle. See, I'm a caring guy. Um, I went to see exactly four friends last night as it was my pal's 40th birthday and his big party that was planned became a handful of us in a garden talking about all the work we'd lost. <laughs> Celebrations. Um, we did do a virtual escape room though which was really fun and if nothing else it means if there's another lockdown I'll be able to waste at least a day or two pretending I can't leave the flat unless I find a clue hidden within a hat or some map coordinates so um, we've got to do what we can right? Maybe try it. I hope you're right. Thank you for listening to this again. Um, I'm currently playing the very fun game of watching the live comedy gigs. I was just starting to get back in the diary. All disappear again. Um, I knew they would, but it's still a bit sad. Uh, I saw the excellent comedian uh, Mark Watson tweet that he's had an enjoyable 40 years, but he should probably get a job. I'm not feeling much the same. Like, what COVID-proof jobs are there that mean you naturally socially distance from everyone? Telegraph pole fixer, Antarctic researcher, Jim Davidson's agent. I'll have to look into it. Anyway, um, but thank you. Thank you for uh, being here, for listening to the show, uh, listening to this part of my not real job. And especially uh, thanks this week to Joe Envoyed and Anonymous, who donated to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro. Um, and should you fancy helping this seem almost like a real job, please do donate there or at patreon.com forward slash parpol bro or the support button on the ACAST page for the show. And obviously, if you can't do that, because really, who's got money anymore? Absolutely no one. No one's got money. I've got one note in my wallet. I don't even know what to do with it. Who takes notes? anymore it's so ancient isn't it it's weird um i'm very tempted to try and get covid just to get the 500 quid payment when told to self-isolate i'm sure it's worth it um anyway if you can't afford to donate then please do review the show on apple podcast stitcher castbox or one of them places and just tell every what which person type you know to give it a listen uh, no other admin this week, um, but there because there might be some gigs this weekend. I won't know till tomorrow if they're still happening. Uh, you can see it tinadub.co.uk if they are. They probably won't be. Have a look anyway. See how quickly they disappear off my website in the morning. Who knows? Um, but what I will recommend is uh, I've been listening to the New York Times' podcast, The Rabbit Hole, um, which is, oh, wow, terrifying, fascinating. It's all about people being radicalised by YouTube. Um, and this week's Reply All uh, podcast, which I love anyway, um, but it's on the who the US conspiracy shitster QAnon might actually be. It's really, really interesting. I would definitely recommend both. Um, and on Wednesday, Clever Clogs and comedian Robin Ince is doing a COVID Q&A with uh, medical professionals, people who actually know shit. Um, he recommended last week's guest um, Sheila Cruikshank who was excellent and he's going to be speaking to a lot more people like Sheila um, on his Cosmic Shambles network at 8.30pm this week on Wednesday um, you'll be able to watch it on the Cosmic Shambles YouTube channel uh, or at CosmicShambles.com and I think it will still be online after the event too so do watch that um, on this week's show as it's climate week uh, which I totally didn't realise when I booked uh, this chat with the guest in but aren't coincidences amazing or maybe I'm a trendsetter and I just didn't realise um, but I am speaking to several time podcast guest and clever environment man Dave Powell who talks about the earth being on fire but somehow somehow manages to be positive with it it's amazing um plus there are a few facty bits because it seems more and more people are believing bonkers stuff about children in tunnels under London due to an elitist cabal when actually they're all at school just getting covid Northern Hemisphere has just endured its hottest summer on record. And no, it's not just because I spent a lot of time in my flat walking around in just my pants. No, I'm sure that did have an effect and someone should really investigate it. 
is, of course, uh, down to climate change, the result of years and years of human-made damage to the planet. And temperatures are now at the stage where vast swathes of America are not only experiencing a metaphorical political trash fire, but also a very much real, also dangerous one, burning across California, Oregon and other states. There are many pictures of the sky looking like a scene from Blade Runner 2049. You know, the orange skyline bits, not the gratuitous giant naked virtual woman bits. Though, to be fair, in that heat, it probably would be the only way to stay cool. More than half Antarctica's ice shelves are collapsing, which is even worse than if I'd done the DIY round there. And the UN have announced that we're now at a crossroads when it comes to saving species from extinction, with over one million now at risk, which sadly doesn't include billionaires or that one wasp that keeps flying into my room while I'm recording this. What's odd, though, is that while most of us people types spent the lockdown marvelling at how nice it was to breathe for once without all the car fumes, or how great it was hearing birdsong instead of Twitter, even though the contents when translated are largely the same territorial or sexual yellings, while surveys insisted that people would now only ever walk, cycle or forward roll to work from now on, and we all say we'd like a greener post-Covid world, the government instead have decided that eco-campaigners Extinction Rebellion are terrorists for not wanting to spend the entire future swimming all the time. I mean, what could be a bigger threat to the country than some people who'd like the country not to sink? Though, to be fair, based on the current situation we're in, maybe that would be the best option. Brexit looks like it'll also set the UK to miss all of its net zero commitments, which is typical Boris Johnson, that it's only when we want a complete lack of output that he fails to achieve it. Meanwhile, the world has failed to hit any of its 2010 targets to stem the destruction of wildlife, and Donald Trump insisted that it will start to get cooler because he doesn't think science knows. But I guess that would be how you think if most places you go to, you get a frosty reception. So, with everything feeling catastrophic right now, are we at a climate tipping point, or has there been any positive developments in planet saving, aside from white-tailed eagles returning to the UK, which at the very least gives hope to my TV pilot of Britain's Got Talons, where various celebs get attacked by birds of prey, and we vote as to who can have it done again and again in following weeks. So, what with it being Climate Week and even the Trophy Cup awarded to people for being in the right family, Prince Charles, saying that swift action is needed on climate change and the pandemic was a wake-up call we can't ignore, you know, unlike anything his brother's been up to, I thought it best to turn to someone who is not only fully versed in actual good info on where we are with climate change, but also, if at all possible, might provide a nugget of hope to pop on top of the flaming pile of poo that is 2020. Of course, that person is the excellent Dave Powell, expert on all things climate-related, co-host of the brilliant Sustainer Babble podcast, former New Economics Foundation advisor, and most importantly, several-time guest on this very podcast. Dave has the enviable ability to inform all about things terrifying, while still being humorous and optimistic despite everything. I asked Dave to pop back on the show and update us on if every summer will be a global barbecue from now on, did all those flights being cancelled do anything at all, and how much of it was to do with me walking around in my pants because it will happen again. It will. No, OK, I didn't ask him the last one. As always, Dave was an educational and reassuring voice to hear. And yes, there's even some hopes squished in towards the end. Hope you enjoy. Here is Dave. Dave, it's lovely to have you back on the podcast. And I say lovely, as I was saying to you before we started recording, I love talking to you. And also, I it fills me with dread, uh, all the things that you know and will inform us about. Um, I was doing a joke uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when comedy still existed, um, about how the one bonus of the pandemic was that it cured my eco-anxiety because I couldn't go outside. Um, however, my eco-anxiety is full on back. Um, there are some pretty terrifying wildfires in America. And I thought if we start there, um, because there's some people on Twitter who seem to go, oh, it's just 2020. Oh, gender reveal parties are bad. Um, But are wildfires just what we should be expecting now? Well, I thought it was because there were more gay people around. Wasn't that what's happening? And God was punishing... (laughs) 
Oh yes, like the floods a few years back. Of course, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, where to start with all that? Yeah, okay. Eco anxiety. Firstly, look, uh, eco anxiety. That's the thing. Um, it has all kind of felt a little bit, hasn't it? Like um, there's more immediate stuff to worry about. And while we've all been worrying about the pandemic, rightly, and what to do about it, kind of in the background, science and the planet has still been ticking along, despite what Donald J. Trump thinks science hasn't stopped and it isn't something you can will back into a box just by saying it uh yeah so at the time of recording where are we now we're sort of middle of last week as your listeners listen to this mm-hmm. uh, america's on fire well big chunks of it are anyway um california in particular is having its huge wildfire season um and it keeps getting worse doesn't it it's like every year this story keeps ramping up and Donald Trump will say that it's just because people haven't been looking after the forest properly. You know, we can talk about that. There's an element of that. As always with stuff Donald Trump says, there's an element of truth to it somewhere. <laughs> um, but not not probably the truest bit of the true thing that you need to talk about. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really bad. And it, it's that kind of apocalyptic thing that you look at it. There's something about it. Did you see that video that someone had done where they'd taken actual live footage of what I think it's Los Angeles looks like at the moment with these kind of orange skies and smoky misty hazy things and they put over it the blade runner soundtrack right yes and it, and it looked to all the world like an advert for blade runner but that is actually here and actually now this stuff is actually going on and it was like was it last summer when australia was on fire you know and, and you just get these kind of visceral images and for years i think climate changes maybe felt a bit like a thing that will happen in the future at some point and it won't be a problem but this is it now this is this is what is going on this is the future. Oh, yeah. And more hurricanes and more flooding and all the rest of it. Scary stuff. Well, it's, there's that meme, you know, the meme of the dog in the house on fire saying this is fine. <laughs> and that yes. meme now feels like it's true. That's that's what, what I always think of. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there's a, a good friend of mine that, uh, who interviewed on my podcast, Frankel Robin, and she she said this line in passing, which is something I, I said to her something like, oh, it's all fine, isn't it? Because X, Y and Z, I was being flippant. And she went, yeah, I can see that things are clearly fine. You know, things are clearly not fine uh and yeah i guess we're kind of waking up to that now maybe i don't know i went on facebook yesterday and it started talking about climate change happening have you seen that yet no yeah facebook. go on your facebook yeah maybe it's just me but go on your facebook and it will now start telling you all about climate change maybe it's just me maybe it's honing in but they've set up this new like climate change information thing that you go on there you know like the sort of thing you get when there's been a natural disaster and it says check in here to see you're safe well you now get something that says uh climate change is real it's a thing and learn about it which is good i mean yeah yeah my god mine just tried to sell me a friend's lego set so i don't think uh, maybe maybe it's your maybe it's your algorithms but i need to try harder (laughs) my algorithms are screwed yeah uh so what should we talk about with the wildfires uh i mean yeah i mean you know because obviously firefighters are not having any luck with them because they're they're too big i mean is it is it just something that's gonna happen is there a way that we is there an an immediate thing that can be done or is the only thing that can be done to stop them sort of reducing emissions and tackling climate change overall i mean the long the long-term thing is no let's not talk about a long-term thing a short-term thing do you have you ever been a fire marshal or gone on like a fire course or any of that no i haven't it's i would i would have loved to have done but i haven't no uh it's great i remember when you do it they treat you like simpletons but it's good because i am a simpleton and they basically <laughs> remind you that that fire is caused by three things what are the three things that cause fire tuna uh oxygen um yeah, fuel fuel yeah. oh fuel yeah oh yeah. and then it would be heat 
Yes. It's got to be heat. And oh, well, I should. There's got to be another one. Then it'd have to be. Oh, hang on, uh, I've done it wrong. Wait a minute. See, I, I am a simple. No. Wait a minute. Uh, air, air, oxygen, oxygen. Yes, in the air. Yeah. yeah. Heat and fuel. So you oh, need and fuel. Three, right. You need That's right. That's what threw yeah. me there. Is that you? Right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if it's so all things being equal, you know, if you are getting more fires, you're getting more of at least one of those things, and that's what's happening in California, right? You are getting um, more heat, basically, is what's happening. That's the main thing that's going on. So climate change is increasing temperatures, um, and some of the stats on this are extraordinary, by the way. Like nine of the ten largest fires in California have happened, that have ever happened, have happened in the last ten years. So it's not, you know, this, this isn't cherry picking stats. These things are getting bigger and bigger. At the same time, nine of the 10 hottest years on record have happened in the last 20 years. And the amount of land on fire is like eight times higher than it was 40 years ago. And what they talk about in California, there used to be this thing of fire season. There used to be, you know, there would be a time when the fires happened, but they don't, there isn't that anymore. Um, it's drier, it's hotter. So one of those three elements of fire has got more more energy in it. It is hotter. Um, there's also um, the thing that Donald Trump was banging on about. So his, he was asked about, um, I hope you play a clip of this. And just in case any of you didn't hear this. Well, look, Ryan, you have forests all over the world. You don't have fires like you do in California. You know, in Europe, they have forest cities. You look at, uh, you look at countries, uh, Austria, you look at so many countries, they live in the forest. They're considered forest cities, so many of them. And they don't have fires like this, and they have more explosive trees. They have trees that will catch easier. But they maintain their fire. They, they, they have an expression, they thin the fuel. The fuel is what's on the ground, the leaves, the trees that fall, that dry. They're like, uh, they're like a matchstick, you know, after 18 months. If they're underground longer than 18 months, they're very explosive. And they have to get rid of that stuff. Yeah, he said that. He was asked about uh, why, you know, why there more wildfires. And he said, oh, it's because we, the forest management hasn't been good enough and they haven't been... Uh, getting rid of old materials there's more material to burn basically and there is something in that that is a thing and i think they're, they're recognizing that they've been so scared of wildfires in california that they haven't been doing what's called good fires which is you know allowing some bits of old stuff to burn so that new shoots can come through fire is ecologically speaking fire is a good thing you know the 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 uh, forests in california evolved in relationships to it so they haven't been doing that there is a lot of fuel about but there is more importantly a lot of heat about and that's being caused by climate change um, which is being caused by us it is bad it's getting worse um, and in the long run you know even even if we stopped emitting absolutely everything right now we're still we still have a warmer world and in the long run if we want to have less chaos you know we talk about global warming and or the guardian's favorite phrase global heating and this is an example of what that means but actually maybe a better way of thinking about it is global weirding there's more energy heat is energy there's more energy in the system so you get more things with power behind them you get more rain you get more hurricanes yes you do sometimes get more severe uh winter spells as well and the more of that we get the more chaos we're going to have and the more that's going to impact people in particular people who don't have the ability to buy their way out of trouble. And I'm guessing as well that with wildfires, wildfires cause smoke in the atmosphere, which adds to the overall horror of everything. 
Yeah, it's it. It's it, as always with climate change. It's not just oh, it's a bit toasty out there. It's oh yeah, it's a bit toasty out there, and I can't breathe. Um, you know, friends of mine who live in California are posting pictures of what think what their cars look like. You know, scraping the ash off their cars every day. And four at the time of recording this, four U.S. cities. I think that's Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles are ranking worst in the world for air quality. Like worse than you've wow. got an image in your head. I've, I went to Delhi about ten years ago, and that was pretty bad air quality wise you think of those fabled chinese cities with the bad air quality worse than any of that you know asthma is going up um and the smoke from it is reaching as far as hawaii almost all the way over there hawaii is never quite where i think it is i always have to look at but anyway <laughs> all the way over there um and that's causing real impacts on people and you know people are dying and there will be more long-term health impacts of this yeah absolutely so that's all really scary. And I mean, yes, as you mentioned that the, the Northern Hemisphere has had its hottest, well, we've just recorded its hottest ever summer, I think uh, it's come out today. And uh, as you said, we've had the hottest temperatures for the la- in, in the last 20 years. Most of the hottest temperatures have happened. Um, so are we, uh, you know, it's been mentioned so many times before. And in fact, I think you've said it when I've had you on this podcast before, but, you know, um, that we're at a turning point and we can, every, everyone said for years we're at a turning point. If we don't do something now, we're never going to be able to turn it back. Um, we must be past that turning point now i guess i mean i've got to compete i'll be honest with you i've got competing views about this because i think the following two things are both true right and it can sometimes feel like they both can't be true so thing number one is last year was it the year before can't remember now all of the world's climate scientists came out and they said in a way that climate scientists don't normally say they said look shit this is really really bad and you lot have got to really start paying attention we need to halve the emissions of global greenhouse gases caused by the coal and oil and fossil fuels and all that stuff is we halve all of that in the next 10 years if we are to have a hope of avoiding a 1.5 degree rise and all of this stuff starts to get a bit cold and technical but basically we like 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels is the sort of it's not safe because it's warmer than it currently is now. And we've seen what's going on in California, for example, but it's, we reckon we can probably cope with it without like dramatically ruining civilization. Basically 1.5 degrees is safe. And particularly that, that target is what, you know, poorer countries need in order. They don't disappear underwater. Right. And so there was this warning that people have started to interpret as a lot of campaigners have started to interpret. Probably I said it when I was last on, you know, well, that means we've got 10 years to halve emissions. And it kind of underpins uh, a lot of the demands of radical campaigning groups or sensible, depending how you look at it, um, like calling for like a Green New Deal, calling for emissions to be effectively zero by 2030. Under That's where a lot of that comes from is no, we have a very small window to rapidly cut emissions if we are to avoid this crossing this threshold um so that is the case that's what the science says but the other thing that is also true is we might not do that it might take us 12 years or 15 years or 20 years or 30 years but everything we can do is a good idea because keeping temperatures to 1.5 degrees is better than two degrees which is a lot better than three degrees and it's considerably better than four and when you start talking about four to six degree temperature rises you're not talking about the relatively minor inconvenience i'll say that you know with my tongue in my cheek of your entire forest fires going on fire you're talking about life on earth for 
millions, potentially billions of people being unviable. You're talking about the mass failure of crop systems. I mean, that's what this really looks like. So, yeah, a, a good friend of mine, James Murray, uh, says his reason for optimism, if you like, you know, you challenged me before we started recording this, find some hope in here somewhere. Well, my reason for <laughs> optimism is that, look, you know, everything we can do is better than doing nothing because this stuff isn't binary. The problem comes that the reason why we can't just go, oh, it's fine, then, you know, we'll put up with three and it'll be all right. The problem comes is that every bit of climate change we get increases the risk of what's called feedback loops or tipping points or increases the risk of things happening like all the ice in uh, Antarctica melting, which we're starting to see, by the way, in the last week, you know, big chunks of ice falling off green ice sheets, um, which means that it exposes dark ground, which means that the, the uh, sun is being less reflected. So you start to get more warming, these sort of tipping points starting to happen or the fabled one that everyone's very scary about and there's early warning signs this might be happening and it's awful if it does which is Russia's permafrost in Siberia melting and underneath that is huge amounts of methane that's been there for years and years and years and that will spill out so yeah we need to do loads and loads and loads um, I, I don't like talking about um, I, it is binary either we've done it or we don't either we do this or we don't we need to do absolutely everything we can we don't know whether that's going to be enough. We don't know the extent to which we can cope with the warming we are going to get, but we are going to have to cope with it. Um, and, you know, damage limitation is one way of looking at it. Adapting to the new normal is another way of looking at it. Like, this is what the world is going to be like now. We are going to have more and more disasters that will start to feel like the new normal. We're going to have more and more need to mobilise huge resources to do something about it. And it won't be a background issue that you can just tuck away and think about every kind of, you know, few months it gets a bit of news coverage and goes away this is what life is going to be like um so there's a psychological adaptation needed as well yeah i mean it felt like uh during lockdown it felt like everyone suddenly became a bit wise to it and suddenly went great this is an excuse to walk everywhere and cycle everywhere and we're not using our cars and isn't it lovely we can all hear birds song yeah. and that the air feels nicer and i mean did any of that make any noticeable difference um yeah, it did. I should have looked that up, shouldn't I? Um, because you gave me a warning that was coming. Um, it, so there were, emissions did fall. I've got it in my head that, please don't sue me if it's wrong, that uh, emissions fell by something like 25% um, is one calculation of it. I also have another thing in my head, which, which is the one that I think is more true, which is that emissions fell by less than we need to be cutting emissions by anyway. And that was right. when we shut down the entire economy. I don't know which of those is right. I can, we could pause and have a look or people can look it up. It did make a bit of a difference, right? But kind of only temporarily and accidentally and not on purpose. In the same way that, you know, when recessions happen, um, that's good for economic, that's good for the environment as well. It's kind of not the way you really want to be doing it is, you mm. know, putting millions of people out of, out of work um so there's the sort of technical thing i think the bigger point is now stuff is now coming back you know flights of private jets are as high as they've ever been um cars the roads are full of cars again etc etc and you know this is the, the bigger point being this is a temporary thing but it was some good stuff came out of that you know um more cycle lanes certainly around where i live more cycle lanes everywhere more people as you say spending time outside and some encouraging stuff from what people are telling the opinion polls anyway about the extent to which they care about climate change. People might have been forgiven for sort of going, oh, I don't care about that green stuff anymore. Because historically, green stuff has been the thing you care about when everything else is kind of going all right. 
um, or when there's a huge spike in public awareness. But actually, no, there was a new opinion poll last week. Across Europe, 90% of Europeans think climate change is a big problem. 60% think it's the biggest problem. Um, so what's, I think, reassuring is that it, people's concern about this hasn't gone away, which is great because 2019 was an amazing year for people getting environmental stuff you know you had all of the kind of extinction rebellion protests you had the school strikers you had david attenborough talking about this and it did seem to me as someone who's been banging on about this for years that we kind of crossed a line somewhere you know that people it was no longer a thing you had in the back of your head but you had it towards the front um what we don't know i think uh, and you know you you'll know as well as me is kind of when all the dust has eventually settled what long-term things may have changed both in terms of how we think about being a human on a volatile planet and i wonder the extent to which we all might feel a bit more um vulnerable is not perhaps the right word but connected to nature you know this is a virus that came out of animals as most human pathogens do these days it came out it was the way we live our life has made it spread um, and it's been caused effectively by being pushed further and further into contact with the natural world we know that um, viruses are not something that is outside us they're kind of part of being alive and maybe somewhere we will have changed our psychology on that but also you know what do our cities look like five years from now do people commute as much do what do our high streets look like are people spending more time in their local areas uh what about clean air well we hang on to that memory i certainly am that memory that we had in the pandemic or at, at the peak of lockdown of going outside for your boris walk and <laughs> being able to taste the air and hear the birds you know what effect does that have uh i don't think we know that yet to be honest uh and it'll be interesting in a kind of horrified abstract way to find out i guess yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's fascinating. I mean, even just, uh, you know, on our Boris walks, we took our daughter sort of round the block and we'd always just look at the flowers, look at all the different trees and what's this blossom doing now and what's happened to the, you know, and that, that pretty much the entire conversation would be about things that are happening in nature and what birds can you hear. And it was just, I know that if that, if we hadn't been uh, doing lockdown walks, we'd probably been take, taking her somewhere or going to a soft play or doing something completely different. So she'd have been getting a different education in terms of the planet. Um, something you mentioned briefly, which um, I, I don't if you if you uh, you know we don't have a lot of information about. But I I was watching the David Attenborough show on extinction the other night, which was oh, uh, yeah. again yeah that that wonderful thing of looking beautiful and being terrifying at the same time. <laughs> see, um, see this, isn't it pretty? Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, that's it's fun. gonna die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> see these cute animals dead and um yeah. it's just always just uh, it's such a weird viewing experience of going i want to see this i really don't want to see this um but one of the things they mentioned on there was about how you know the pandemic it, it, as you mentioned it's our behavior that is, leads to things like pandemics because we're infringing on animals habitats that we might not have been otherwise and uh, and is that uh you know it you know are we likely to maybe see, see side effects like that that we perhaps hadn't thought of Side, what, what do you mean? What side effects? Well, well I mean, things like from climate change, if, if that's... I, I, I'm asking you this, I didn't give you any warning of this, I should say to listeners, right. so I'm just throwing this at you. But but it, I, I thought that was a fascinating thing in, the, in terms of all the things that I've worried about with climate change. And uh, there are quite a lot, including, you know, increased... Um, there's going to be people, uh, more refugees because people leaving areas that are not habitable and, and uh, all those sort of things that aren't immediate as, you know, away from flooding and fires. But one of them then perhaps is also pandemics. Uh, and... Is you know are there more things like that that we haven't uh, accounted for? Well, I think there's uh, a sort of taking a, a guess a bigger picture on all of this. One of the things that 
I think we are beginning also to make the connection about, and again, tell me if you think this is right, I don't know, is that I don't think people see climate change so much anymore as like the environmental problem is climate change. For years and years, I, it seemed to be to me that people would say climate change as a shorthand for environmental sustainability so they would like that they knew there was this problem which was climate change and they also sort of in their heads a bit that was the same as recycling do you know what i mean um and that was the same as like air pollution and i think we're beginning to see that the that things climate change is a symptom of a bigger problem extinctions are a symptom of a bigger problem the pandemics are a symptom of a bigger problem as you said as is air pollution as is plastic pollution all this stuff which is basically we've got one planet but we don't behave as if we only have one planet. We have economies that are vastly more impactful than that. We don't psychologically see ourselves as living within just one planet. And it's the only place in the universe we can live. But we've managed to somehow trundle along for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, thinking that someone else somewhere is going to clean up this mess. And all of this stuff is basically the same problem, which is until we work our economies and our psychologies and the way we behave in a way that was like, yeah, well, we have to basically keep all of this stuff not ruining the only place we can live not causing impacts that someone else comes along and picks up until we do that then we've got a problem and i I think actually the thing there's some right shit that you see about pandemics all this sort of nature is healing type stuff you might hear some people going oh nature is healing because fish are back in the canals in venice like well all right then okay fine um but there's something at the heart of that that may actually last which is this sense you know maybe what you're getting at that pandemics and climate change and air pollution and nature destruction and plastic pollution and all of this stuff oh and inequality and loneliness all of these things are all connected they're not distinct issues they are to do with the way we live and the way we think and the way companies work and kind of convenience for want of a better word if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we'll be back with Dave in a minute, but first... This past weekend, for the umpteenth time this pandemic, thousands of anti-mask conspiracy theorist types marched in Trafalgar Square, super angry that they might have to wear a mask for five minutes when going into a shop, but I bet many of them are also annoyed that they can't go to costume parties on Halloween and will never understand the hypocrisy. Loads of them seem to think the coronavirus is a hoax, as conjured up by composite of pharmaceutical hairpieces and Microsoft owner Bill Gates. And to be fair, his own antivirus software is so shit, maybe they have a point. This sort of thing, though, has been prevalent throughout the pandemic, and while the extreme believers are fans of disturbed love child of Pat Sharp and Sam Neill, David Icke, on the other ends are Covid sceptics such as people in Bolton, who've started the hashtag thinking for yourself, and one MP says are responsible for the area having the highest infection rates in England. Which isn't fair, as maybe they were just thinking for themselves and thought it might make Christmas cheaper if there's less relatives to visit and buy presents for. It's clear that being stuck indoors and having time to scour the internet and find other people who believe the same batshit things as you does kind of bolster that. As does the way in which many websites are designed to radicalise you with video after video of the same extreme opinions and also possibly the fact there's really fuck all else to do. So wouldn't it just be fun if there were lizard people? No, no it wouldn't. They'd leave their shed skin everywhere and it'd be disgusting. So here, as I did earlier in the Big Pando on this podcast, are just a few quick facts in response to what some seem to think are the real truth. And I'm aware that some bits may be retreading over what immunologist Sheena Crickshank said on the podcast last week. So do go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Yeah, but yeah, COVID-19 hasn't been classed as a high consequence infectious disease since March. So I can basically drink pints of it and be fine. Yeah, that's true. Uh, COVID-19 was classified as a HCID in January, but then a few months later, once more was learned about it, it was demoted, which must have made all its pals take the piss out of it down the boozer. A high-consequence infectious disease is basically a proper deadly. You know, something like Ebola, SARS, MERS, but not Ollie, and then there's a handful of others. 16 in total. The proportion of all people who get those diseases and then die is pretty high. About 50% of people uh, that get Ebola die, about 15% for SARS. Whereas COVID, it's just 1%. So you're probably thinking, ah, that's not too bad. I mean, half the British population catching it would just mean 300,000 deaths. And if anything, the roads are too busy as it is. But that would still be 300,000 people. And the thing with COVID-19 is that it spreads very well, like one of those margarines that's always soft and is both tasty but concerning. So the chances of it reaching those 300,000 or more is high if the infection rate starts soaring. The other issue is that aspects about what's known as long COVID are still being discovered, with studies so far showing at least 1 in 10 people experiencing breathing, muscular and even neurological difficulties months and months after catching it. So that's potentially another 330,000 people affected by it if 50% of the population are infected. And I mean, even if you don't get the long effects, it can still be a shitty and uncomfortable few weeks, despite it meaning that you might get away with not doing quite so much parenting throughout. So, yeah, it's not a high-consequence infectious disease under the official death rate classification, but that doesn't mean it's not bad in several other ways. It's like how I'm not allowed to be officially classed as a ninja because I'm very unhealthy and loud and haven't done any training, but if I went round sneaking up on everyone, there'd be a good amount of people who'd get hurt, probably including me, so, you know, I don't. I'm not really sure that's a great analogy, but it's there now, and it won't go away. Yeah, but no one even dying from it anymore, are they? 
Yeah, they still are, with 27 across the UK being the stats for yesterday as I record. But obviously, deaths are lower, partly because doctors now know how to treat the rona with steroids and shit, so your cells get all pumped and jacked and smack it some, but also because infection rates have been low. As rates rise, there is a lag of two to three weeks before the death rates start to spike again. So to put it bleakly, wait and see. People don't just catch it and immediately keel over, otherwise it'd be back in the HCID Hall of Infamy and get a badge or something. There's so many false positives in them tests that nearly everyone that's been told they've got it didn't actually have it and it's never existed in the first place. Here's the thing, COVID-19 particles can hang around. They're a bit like that shit guest at the end of a party. If you get a test after you've had it, they might still be there, even if you put Leonard Cohen on the speakers. And that results in what's known as a false positive, a phrase that I feel I should use for most things that TV tries to sell you. This is a problem with any test about any sort of lurgy, because tests have to detect minute amounts of virus so that they don't miss it. Depending on what you read, false positives on COVID tests are anywhere between 0.8% to 2.3% of all cases. Though obviously, if you're doing a big old testing thing like Operation Moonshot of 10 million tests a day, that will never actually happen. That 2.3% could end up being quite a lot of people that are told they've got it when they actually don't. But there are also false negatives which fail to pick up the virus or the patient gets tested before the virus is in full swing. And that's also dangerous as they could run around coughing at all their friends and family for lols thinking they're fine and suddenly it's like the end scene of Hamlet up in here. So yes, false positives are a thing, but so are false negatives, even though they're not as common. And so are people who aren't able to get a test but have it. And so are hospital admissions, the death rate and the fact that with time and a proper system, you could just have a more accurate test that's brought back to you quicker and you could get the most vulnerable tested first and reduce all transmission rates. At the moment, by the time most people in the UK receive their test results, they may have got over the virus or have caught it from somewhere else entirely. Even though it sounds like an easy own over the COVID, be less worried about the false positives and the overall lack of availability of testing. Usual scientific standards don't matter anywhere near as much if you don't have Deloitte losing your Q-tip in a theme park nine times out of ten. Yeah, but what about Bill Gates and the lizard people? Well, yes, they are my favourite indie band too. But the thing is, I just can't fathom why you need to go along with a completely bonkers conspiracy when the real awful shit corruption is happening very openly right there. I mean, the government have issued a lot of very, very costly contracts to people who haven't bid for tenders and don't seem to be qualified in any way other than being pally with various ministers of the PM or Dominic Cummings, as when spoke to Emma Yule in a previous episode a couple of weeks ago. Dido Harding's been handed big job after big job, despite her only qualification being in charge of a telecommunications company which hacked by teenagers and being a jockey for a while. Frankly, I wouldn't trust her to look after a pet cat without worrying I'd come home to find it had either escaped or she was trying to gallop it around the living room. But she is married to a Tory MB, is a Tory peer and is in charge of the jockey club. So I guess that's enough. And then there's the £100 billion Operation Moonshot plan for 10 million tests a day to be distributed around the country, which just happens to have been given to Reviv, a health company where Boris Johnson's younger half-brother Max sits on the board, which at least sounds more productive than the Prime Minister who just sits around bored. There's the MP that's been accused of rape but is suddenly hidden from public sight and whose name won't be revealed. There's Boris's possible trip to Italy. There's all the potential election fraud that happened during the Brexit thing. There's the laundered money of Russian donors. And for those conspiracists that are all about save the children, there was the actual inquiry into historical child abuse that Johnson said was a total waste of money. But sure, I get it. Looking into all those things is hard and requires research. And it's a lot more exciting to pretend that Bill Gates, who I'm sure has done some awful things despite giving all that dosh to charity... It's much easier to pretend that he's caused the coronavirus. I don't think so. I don't think he did. I mean, for a start, it would take even longer to get into your system, probably have to upload overnight, and it'd have so many glitches you wouldn't get a high temperature as you'd be too busy freezing. And now, back to Dave.
I, I did really like the idea just that, that I had in my head of uh, this is the animals because coronavirus came possibly from a bat or a pangolin or whatever creature we Bastards. we decide. Yes. Yeah, um, I like the <laughs> fact that I, in my head I thought maybe it's the animals going, screw you. I'm just going to get, you've done enough damage. We're going to get rid of you now. <laughs> Well, there are some people who would who take that view. To be honest, I have read I have read some posts that are like this is the revenge of the pangolin or whatever. And by the way, the pangolin would be perfectly entitled to take revenge on us, given yeah. the fact that we are we are ruining its entire life. You know? Yeah, but I like it. I, I like it. Yeah, it's, it's I think a good story. A, I, I think there's a there's a more ecological way of thinking about that, which is we are part of nature. We are not separate to it. We are part of the planet. We're not separate to it. You don't have to be a hippie to think that. It is obvious if you take a second yeah. to look at it, right? Um, and so it, it's not that this stuff is somehow fighting back. It's just that we are part of those dynamics. And sometimes those dynamics, um, as they are at the moment, are, are really hard to avoid. I I, uh, I still think about it quite a lot, but I always think about the astronauts uh, who get the overview effect, which is the first mm. moment they look back at the Earth for the first time from space and go, oh, wow, it's one beautiful place and that's my home. And they always come back environmentalists and with this sort of renewed notion of where it is that they're from. And, and I, I, I did a whole show about it a couple of years ago about why do we have to send people to space for them to realize that and how de- how depressing it is that we're going to have to spend money just to send people away so you can yeah. look back and get like that um but yeah something I think about it. Send, send them to stevenage it would have the same effect <laughs> i'm sure having been stevenage i can cook <laughs> um i uh this you know it's, we're talking about being all one planet uh but to, to bring things in a little bit um the uk government uh you know um are they doing anything remotely positive about climate change because one of the things i found really disappointing i suppose was hearing in the last budget that uh it would be the greenest budget ever and then there was lots of money for roads and then <laughs> there's lots of talk about bailing out all airlines and and obviously we want to save people's jobs but at the same time there didn't seem to be much impetus on having a greener future no i mean crikey i don't know I'm being a little bit wishy-washy about some of this stuff because I do think it depends how you look at it, right? So it is it is definitely easy to kick the UK government for being shit on climate change, right? And that that is a thing we can do. We can talk about stuff exactly like you've just said, right? That there are they are still building roads, they are still um, all up for drilling all the North Sea's oil, all of that type of stuff, right? Same time, they are doing some stuff. Let's not pretend they're not. So we do have a target to be at what is called net zero emissions. Uh, maybe in another podcast we can talk about why that net is a bit tricky. But, you know, we, we do have a target that by 2050 our economy will be, will be effectively zero carbon, right? That's pretty good. Um, other countries in the world are, you know, coming on board behind that as well. In One of the things that old Dishy Rishi did was he doled out a few billion pounds to help people insulate their homes. I mean, in order, you know, to help them save money, but also finally get that bit of home insulation going, which is hugely important because one of the most wasteful things we all do every day is live in a house where all the heat goes out the window and we have to spend money we don't need to heat a building that could be a lot warmer. Um, And I think to be totally fair to them, when it comes to kind of leadership on climate change stuff, we're hosting this, uh, it was supposed to be this year, it's now going to be next year, we're hosting this big international climate conference, like mm. the next big th- the next big climate talks are happening in Glasgow 2021. And, and the UK is, is seen as being pretty good from a sort of le- international leadership point of view. Um, so there's also, on a kind of like mechanical level, yeah, there is a load of stuff they could be doing better. You know, if they're going to bail out the airlines, they should be putting green conditions on them as france has done 
for example. But it's not all miserable on a narrow technical point of view at all. And I don't think it's fair to say that it is. I think, you know, that can be a bit kind of mean. But then there is the bigger question, which is, well, what does it actually mean to be a government that takes environmental breakdown seriously? Not just climate change, but nature and all the rest of it and air pollution. And the problem is, I think the way they look at it is, and the way that companies look at it and the way that I think a lot of our narrative talks about it is it's still this thing that a department does. So there's a bit of the government and your job, your job, mate, is climate change. Just put some climate change stuff, do that. Your job over there, your job is bats. You look after the bats, right? And we still have the purpose of economic policy being growth and expansion um, and in keeping consumption going. Just last week, the government's announced, you know, uh, this review on how to get more competition and more choice in markets. And that's fine in a, as, you know, as a thing, but it doesn't mention anything about, but actually the purpose might be to have better consumption, not just more of it, right? And for as long as the point of government is economic growth first and then fixing this stuff around the margin second then no, we aren't doing enough about it. Uh, no government in the world really is. New Zealand was having a slight stab in that direction, but it's kind of chucked a lot of that out of the window with its um, pandemic response stuff. Um, and, you know, they are more concerned about Brexit and potentially breaking international law and, you know, understandable stuff about keeping the economy going and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, are they doing enough? Well, they're doing more than some people and at a policy level they're doing some good stuff and some bad stuff okay blah 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 blah. but we're not running the economy as if this was the mm. fundamental point of what an economy is for to create great lives for everyone within the limits of the planet which is the only place in the universe we can live and until we do that uh, no we're not doing enough We'll also them sort of referring to extinction rebellion as terrorists uh, i think right. and uh, criminals was a uh, just a really obviously, you know, the protests, uh, you know, government want to stand up against protests that block the press that they get the best, uh, you know, <laughs> the best coverage in. But it, but still, to refer to them as something so, uh, I don't know, vicious as terrorists or criminals is, is, I feel like that puts a bad message to other people that the people who are protesting to save our planet are terrorists. I don't feel like that's a very good message to uh, put out there. Yeah, and I don't. I mean. There's a lot of debate about whether Extinction Rebellion are doing the right thing or not. I mean, Extinction Rebellion doesn't work like that for a start. It's not one organisation. It's a kind mm. of, you know, it's loads of people doing what they want to do. I honestly, I, I think two things. Firstly, I think they're doing something, which is more than a lot of people are doing. Mm. And that actually, if you are um, just going along with business as usual, you've probably missed the point, which is that business as usual is what's got us into this mess, right? Um, but also, I mean, they, you know, we don't know yet, I don't think, exactly what his, how history will look back at Extinction Rebellion and say whether it helped or not. It seems likely to me that we will look back at people who in the year 2019, 2020 said, no, we're going to start challenging the way some stuff works. We're going to look back on them in 10 or 20 years when wildfires is totally normal. You know, we had them in the UK last year. We get more wildfires going on um we'll look back i think we're more likely than not to say they were right and the people who said all we need to do is trundle economic growth as usual were wrong that's what i think um so i do think describing them as terrorists is going to look it's going to be a bad look in a few years time um what do i know what do any of us know I, uh, people are doing stuff and i i always say you know what's the alternative then for people who say, oh, we don't, uh, Extinction Rebellion are bad, we shouldn't be disrupting the times, we shouldn't be making people's lives difficult. Like, okay, fine, you can have that opinion, but show me your plan then. Show me your mm. plan to change the way this system 
works, to change the way economic decisions are made, to change the narratives of media. Um, and just, you know, I, I don't mind if people have a plan, but they don't have a plan generally. The plan seems to be, oh, we'll just set some targets, by the way, which we might not meet, and we'll just create a few incentives which people aren't taking up, and that's it. Well, it's not good enough. I, I totally agree. And I, I mean, also part of me thought that they stopped people getting the Daily Mail for a day. So I think that's right. going to be seen as heroic in a few years time, uh, if not already. Yeah, as you say, you know, th- th- normal normal life is happening. People are kind of returning back to normal. People don't want to go to work and, uh, you know, but schools have restarted. And I don't know, as you said, traffic's returning, things like that. But there, I wonder if there are some positive developments that have happened in recent months. I mean, I'm just been slightly heartened by the occasional news story of rewilding <laughs> of beavers coming back or that bird that had come back for the first time in hundreds of years and um which just felt to me like oh at least some positive stuff is uh is going on have, have there been any particular positive developments that you can think of in recent months uh that you know hopefully good uh well i do think a lot of what a lot of governments have done in response to the pandemic has been good um there's a website called carbon brief if your listeners are interested which have got they've basically got a running total a running table of what all governments around the world have done in response to the pandemic like economic stimulus stuff and the extent to which it is green and there's some massive things in there you know um i think france in particular has been particularly good um south korea has done a load of stuff so loads of countries are going well, hang on a minute. We've got a massive recession coming. We need to create jobs. We need to stimulate particular bits of the economy. What about if we pick the green bits, right? Um, and that's been really good to see because it's such a it's such a decisive thing for what happens. Things like these climate talks we've got coming up. What we do on climate change in the next two or three years. It really does matter, kind of, what the story that we've told ourselves is about whether the economic response to the pandemic is business as usual or business as usual but better right it does matter and yeah you're right there are other things as well you know and that uh, there are creatures doing well i think there's some beavers as you said some beavers are back somewhere um we've managed to save some animals somewhere i always get a little bit like that that's nice i suppose um generally we are extinctifying all the animals and that's that's less mm. nice but it is good that we can save some to me, the most positive thing, and this really is a positive, is that despite all the horrors of the pandemic, both in terms of lives and disruption and jobs and all that stuff, despite all of that, we are still talking about climate change. In fact, it feels to me, I was really worried it would go away. I know a lot of people were worried it would go away, um, but it's not. And it's a silly thing, but going on Facebook now and seeing that the first thing that I guess some people get hit by is a thing talking about climate change from Facebook is positive. You know, I do think it's a good thing. Um, I refuse to be miserable about that because I think that it was unfortunately always had to be the case that the stuff had to get bad before a lot of people would really start paying attention to it. You know, the place where um, the place where Facebook is has to be on fire for Facebook to start using its power to tell people about climate change. Well, okay, but at least that's happening now. Yeah, we've 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 always been a reactive species rather than a proactive. Yeah. That's that's always the problem. We need to kind of see it to go. Oh yeah, I should probably do something about it now rather than I'll put things in place so it doesn't happen again. Um, and I, 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 that is that is hopeful. There was some hope. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. That was nice. Um, and I just wondered, like, it's, and again, it's something that I've asked you before on the show, but. It, 
it does feel like so many things that are more, you know, there's so many things that even just I'm doing now that I wasn't doing 10 years ago that are more environmentally friendly. I'm recycling without thinking about it. Every day we've got our recycling bag for cardboard and glass mm-hmm. and all those things that you just, it's just second nature now to just do it. And I've got reusable coffee cups and all the sort of things that you're meant to have, but it's it's just become commonplace, which is yeah. nice. Um, but what are... You know, is, is there anything else that we should be doing? Because I, I feel, as we said, sort of being reactive, a, a lot of people, including myself, only really do things when the council implement them or, you know, things happen as, as part of a country, as part of the world changing to do something about it. Um, otherwise, you don't really get on with it ourselves. It often feels a bit too big to do anything ourselves. Um, is there anything that we, we should be doing that is... I mean, easy is probably the wrong word. Nothing's easy if it's going to make a proper change. But, you know, is, is there anything that listeners could go, right, that is one small thing that I could be doing that I'm not? Yeah. Um, a lot of people are kind of down on the what you might call green consumption stuff. So things like you were just talking about, you know, like the, the stuff you do in your daily life, use a recyclable coffee cup, you know, take a paper bag to the shop, buy a greener product than a non-greener product. I mean, I, I think definitely do that stuff, right? It, it, it can feel like it doesn't make a difference. Sure, but like do it because it's the right thing to do. And, and, you know, if everyone does a little bit more, then that's helping. It is adding up. As we talked about, you know, 20 minutes ago, um, doing something is better than doing nothing. So definitely keep doing that stuff. But I reckon, I think there are four, would you like four things? I think there are four things that are, if you're going to do something, things that aren't pissing into the wind, things that actually might make a, a difference. The first thing is move your money, right? If you've got any money, or if you don't move the, um, and by money, I mean, you know, your bank account or your pension, if you have a pension or your energy company so things where you are making a financial decision on who effectively you are giving money to on a rolling basis there are greener and less green companies greener and less green banks greener and less green pension funds energy companies all that stuff do that um because you know if you add it all up how much you're actually spending how much money these companies have it adds up over time second but but really importantly this is so important don't just move it tell them why tell the company that you're moving away from why you're moving it so don't check out a NatWest or Barclays and just think they won't care write to them and say I'm doing this because you are supporting the investment in fossil fuels or whatever or because this other bank over here is greener so do that so don't just boycott stuff but tell people why you're doing it secondly vote and I mean and probably what I mean by that is get political small p political like when you get a chance to vote vote for actual politicians who are actually saying they take this stuff seriously but when you get a chance to vote in anything your student union or any sort of workplace Uh, voting thing you have maybe your union at work or in any way you can use your power to harangue those in charge and get them to do the right stuff right that really matters thirdly from a sort of consumption point of view there are two really big ticket things which is flying so if you don't have to fly don't fly does make a difference and meat and dairy which is that you know the, the not just climate but the sort of land and water and animal intensification side of that is really bad so don't give it all you have to not fly ever or not eat meat and dairy ever but just do a bit less right a bit less of that is generally good and then fourthly and i think this is the most important one it's the one everyone thinks is wishy-washy which is maybe why i like it but just talk about this stuff like a human being have conversations with people right that was the thing that really felt like it changed for me in 2019 was that climate change became a thing that you would just hear normal people in the hairdressers talking about people were it and for 
I think we all need to get a bit better at just talking about it in a way that, yeah, this is a thing. I'm worried about it. I'm scared about it. Here's what I think about it. Talk about it to your family and your friends and your colleagues and all that stuff. Just talk about it. Because the more we normalise it, the more it starts to become a thing that everyone is taking seriously, as you were saying, kind of in the back of your head without even thinking about it. Normalising this stuff is so important. Otherwise, whatever works for you, man. Whatever, whatever you... If you're a sort of person who's driven to protest, go out and join Extinction Rebellion or whatever works for you. If you own a company, change the way that company works. If you are an artist, do some art. You know, just do what you can do. If you're a teacher, teach. Um, that's what I reckon. There's not one thing that people can do because it doesn't work like that because what we're talking about is the entire way that we live and the entire way our planet works, right? And we are small and it is big, but we can all do things and what you know what you can do, I reckon, and do a bit more of that. And I like that by talking to you today, I've already done number Very four. Very good. And, so uh, can... and I, feel like I've, I feel like I've overachieved already. I'm probably just going to go and have a sandwich. Go and set, set so, fire to uh, an otter a... in your garden just because you... Just, <laughs> That's yeah. it. I can balance it out. <laughs> <laughs> Only a shitty utter, Dave. I'm not going to yeah. be. I'm not going to take one that didn't deserve right, it. Right. Thanks tons to Dave for coming on the podcast again. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Powell. That's uh, with two L's. Ds. Uh, his website is davidpowell.uk, and his brilliant podcast that somehow always manages to make the bleakness of climate change quite fun uh, is Sustainable, uh, which he hosts with Oliver Hayes. And you can get that at all them podcast places and on Twitter at the Babble Wagon. Any other suggestions you or your nan might have for who I should interview next, then give us a shout at Paul Polbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could just leave it on a plane like a careless idiot in charge of a careless idiot. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And thank you uh, for listening. And of course, it's the very end of the show. So here is this week's Pop Pop Bro Hot Polgos Fact. As the public once again get the brunt of the government's blame for coronavirus spreading, do you know what the most ridiculous blame game example has been in political history? And yes, I know this could be filled with actually just the past four years of butt passing more than in a weird sport that involves lobbing a deer at people. But there is a long history of scapegoating, and so let's have a temporary break from it all being the fault of the EU refugees, communists, civil servants, Mexicans, young people, black people, school teachers, disabled people, firefighters, the NHS, China, or Saturday Night Live. And let's maybe look a little bit beyond that. So, was it in 2014 when the Turkish government, led by veritable dictator and melting seal Recep Erdogan, blamed widespread power cuts on a cat? Yep, these power cuts that just happened to disrupt the vote counting of the local elections were not at all to do with foul play and Erdogan's party totally swept the electoral map all by itself, meanwhile firing water cannons at protesters. It was, of course, all down to one cat who entered the power distribution unit and I guess died in it. Clearly a load of bollocks, but the government milked it anyway. At the same time, if anyone's going to take down an authoritarian who looks like a mutant rodent, maybe cats are the best offence. But it's not that example, and nor is it in 2014 when the Environment Secretary and stock photo of a Conservative Owen Patterson blamed the failure to reach a badger cull target on badgers themselves, who Owen said kept moving the goalposts. Maybe it's because he's an idiot that Patterson was outwitted by badgers, or maybe it's because it's hard for him to contemplate an animal so black and white when his entire existence has been in a grey area. But no, the winner from the same year of 2014, what was wrong with that year? Jesus, 
Maybe maybe 2014 was when it started to go wrong. The winner from that year was UKIP councillor and necrophage David Sylvester, who blamed that year's heavy storms and floods on the legalisation of gay marriage. Something that was not only homophobic, but such a weird thing to be upset about. I mean, if that was true, why not harness that power and have as many gay marriages as possible in areas of wildfires or dehydrated land? Perhaps it was merely a cry for help from David, a man that looks like anyone he meets would dry up within seconds. So that's this week's Parpol Bro Hot Pole Goss Fact. And if you enjoyed it and the show, please tell everyone you've ever known or have heard about in a book or seen in a film. If you hated it, then please use the rage it gave you to power something useful, like sending a ton of cats to infiltrate Westminster's power circuit or conduct several thousand same-sex weddings in Oregon right now, just in case. Please also donate if you can to the ko-fi.com forward slash bro site, join the patreon.com forward slash bro, or hit the supporter button on the Acast app too. And don't forget to give the show a lovely nice five-star review in your podcast app of choice as well. Big thanks to Acast, my brother last skeptic, Cat Day, Scott Napier and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when the coronavirus alert level hits five, but the government doesn't change any restrictions and insists that it's now out of 20. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by PM Support. Are you down that you're only earning £150,000 a year and because you're in the spotlight, people expect you to actually do work and stop lying to your children? Then give us a ring. We're here anytime to help you work out exactly how much of your pitiful salary to spend on cocaine, how much on gambling at your oligarch friend's party and if you can claim call girls on expenses. We've got brand new lies to tell your children, such as, sorry, I was at my new most favourite one, Secret Baptism, which is why I've not seen you in two years. As well as quality covers for the country when things are tough, such as, I'm going to take direct control. PM support, because while you're not there for the country, we're here for you.